But I want to just kind of summarize Genesis chapter 12 for you uh, with one statement tonight before we get into the particulars of this passage. But first, let's read Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The Bible says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. And you are included in all the families of the earth. And so this is an important passage for you and for your family. And so let me summarize what chapter 12 is going to be about to kind of set the stage for the, the digging deeper we're about to do. This is in your notes. We are reminded from this chapter that God has a heart and a plan for the nations. We are reminded from this chapter that God has a heart and plan for the nations. He's going to do something through the descendants of Abraham that will provide blessing for all the peoples, available blessing for all the peoples on the face of the earth. Uh, Now, turn to Isaiah 49. Isaiah chapter 49. I want to show you how God's heart is for his people, the Jews, but it goes far beyond the Jews. Isaiah 49. Verse 6. This is God the Father prophetically speaking to God the Son. Isaiah 49 verse 6, he says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for what? The nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And so the the Father says to the Son, It's too small a thing, it's too light a thing that I send you to, to earth to take on human flesh, to live, to suffer, to die, just for one group of people, just for the Jews. I'm sending you not just for the Jews, but for all the nations. And so that is good news, uh, because uh, everyone needs Jesus, and Jesus is for everyone that embraces him as Lord and Savior. So let's go back to Genesis 12, and let's talk about God's plan to bless the nations. We're going to learn a lot of lessons about his plan, and we're going to make some personal application to all of our lives. Because if you are a follower of Jesus, God wants you to be a part of this plan. God wants you to be a part of what he's doing in the world. So, what is God's plan to bless the nations all about? Well, here it is. God's plan to bless the nations involves ordinary people. It involves ordinary people. Look what it says there in chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram. Now we don't know a whole lot about Abram. We can go back to chapter 11, verse 27, and we see that these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram. This is verse 27. Nahor and Haran. Haran fathered Lot, Haran, died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of the kindred uh, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah. The name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. 
Now Sarah was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran his grandson and Sarah his daughter-in-law his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. So we just see the, the explanation of a family. Uh, this family line comes from uh, Noah's son Shem. And there's nothing really that stands out about this family. They're uh, having children, they're marrying wives, they're uh, locating in certain places to live. They're just an ordinary human family. And God, it says, speaks to Abram in chapter 1 of verse 12. The Lord said to Abram, the extraordinary God speaking to an ordinary person. So his plan is going to involve Abram in a mighty way, in an important way. And Abram was just an ordinary guy. And guess what? As we see God's plan of redemption, of salvation for the nations unfold throughout all the pages of Scripture, God just keeps on using ordinary folks. You ever wonder why God uses ordinary folks? Well, we don't have to wonder because the Bible tells us, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 with me. New Testament book of 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is a great passage if you think you're ordinary. If you're just an ordinary person, this is a, an encouraging passage for you, an encouraging passage for me. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that... As as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So there are are three reasons in this passage that describe to us why God uses weak, ordinary folks. Reason number one is found in verse 27. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. (laughs) When God uses ordinary folks to accomplish his purposes and... The, wit, the wise think they have something to offer, something to bring to the table, but God doesn't need them. It humbles them, right? God doesn't need anybody. God chooses to use people, and he loves to use ordinary folks so that those who think they are wise according to worldly standards will be humbled. So that's the first reason. Second reason is found in verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So no one can say, I'm being used by God because I'm so great. I'm being used by God because I'm so smart. I'm being used by God because I'm so strong. I'm being used by God because of my noble position. No one can say that because think about it. Do we have anything to offer to God that he does not already possess? Right? Does God need our strength? No, he's all-powerful. Does he need our wisdom? No, he's all-knowing. We don't bring anything to the table. And so no one can boast before the Lord in how great they are because no one can give God anything that he doesn't already possess. And if they bring anything to the table, it's because God has given them grace to have that 
capability in their life. That's the second reason. Here's the third reason that God loves to use weak people, ordinary people, to do extraordinary things. Verse 31, let the one who boasts, what? Boast in the Lord. When God uses weak people, ordinary people, to accomplish his purposes, who gets the glory? Not, not, Not the weak person, not the instrument, but the one who uses them, the one who empowers them, the one who uh, encourages them. God gets the glory. And so this, this pattern is found all throughout the Scriptures. God loves to use ordinary folks. Think about the story of the anointing of David. Do you remember when uh, the Lord sent Samuel to the house of Jesse? He said, one of Jesse's sons is going to be the next king, and... Jesse's oldest sons line up and they're big and strong and tall and handsome and they're seasoned warriors. And Samuel looks and says, surely one of these guys is going to be the next king. And he goes to each one of them and the Lord says, no, it's not him and it's not him and it's not him and it's not him and it's not him. And and Samuel ran out of sons to go to, to anoint. And so Samuel said to Jesse, do you have any other sons? And Jesse said, well, there's just one, you know, our little one, our, you know, the, the, the youngest, the baby of the family, the runt of the litter. His name's David. He's out in the field attending to the sheep. He's a shepherd. And Samuel said, bring him in. And and David comes in, and the Lord says to Samuel, that's the one. Anoint him the next king of Israel. And then the Lord gives David a very powerful principle by which he operates. And here's what it is. He said, Samuel, man looks at the outward appearance, but I look at what? The heart. The heart. So God loves to use weak people who have a heart committed to him. And he uses them in extraordinary ways. We see that found in the story of Abraham. So God's plan to bless the nation, nations involves ordinary people. So if you're ordinary, you are a, a prime candidate to be used greatly by God to be a part of his unfolding plan of rescue for the world. Isn't that exciting? It's good stuff. Now here's the second thing about God's plan to bless the nations. God's plan to bless the nations calls... This is where, and this is where I'm going to step on your toes a little bit. It calls for uncomfortable obedience. Now, we all say amen to the first one. Boy, I'm ordinary. You know, use me, God. But if you're going to be used by God, God is going to call you most likely to what I've termed uncomfortable obedience. And we see this pattern start with Abram. So turn back with me to Genesis 12. Let me show you what the Lord called Abram to do. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. So I want you to leave where you are, and I want you just to go, and when you get where I want you to go, I'll tell you. (laughs) Not a lot of assurance in that, is there? Now, what was God calling Abram to do? God called Abram to leave. He called him to leave familiar surroundings. He says, go from your country. This was the place that Abram had settled. They're from the Ur of the Chaldeans, and they come to Haran, and they settled there, and they made their life there, and this was familiar territory for Abram. This is where he was making his living. This is where he lived his life. He, he knew the people. He knew the landscape. He knew the climate. I mean, this was familiar 
surrounding, uh, for surroundings for Abram. And God said, leave your country. Go from your country. And then he called Abram to leave familiar people. Look what he says. Go from your country and your kindred. And your kindred. Familiar people. And so I want you not just to leave the, the place that you're aware of, I want you to leave the people that, that are closest to you, the people that you know the best, that know you the best, your family. I want you to leave them. I've got a plan for you, and it's going to be uncomfortable because I'm calling you away from your family. You say, wait, would God call somebody to leave their family for his purposes? Well, he does it with Abram. And we see it happen many times throughout the scriptures. Familiar people. Then God called Abram to leave his place of security. He says, leave your father's house. Your father's house. Something comforting about living right there by dad, right? Things go bad, you can, you, you can go and, and, and dad will take care of you. But I want you to leave your security. I want you to leave your father's house and go to a place that I will show you. And so he's calling him to uncomfortable obedience. So look there in your notes. That last phrase. God called Abraham to go to an unfamiliar place filled with unfamiliar people with no promise of security. God called Abraham to go to an unfamiliar place filled with unfamiliar people with no promise of security. And so God's plan to rescue people from their sins, which we see from Genesis 1-11 through is needed, right? If we, if we learn anything from Genesis 1-11 through is sin makes a mess of things. Have you learned that lesson yet? Sin makes a mess of things. We need a savior. We need a rescuer. And God is all about rescuing people. And he wants to use us to let people know that rescue is available. That the rescuer has come. That he's provided for their salvation. Provided for their redemption. But if we're going to be used by God, it will often mean, listen, uncomfortable obedience. And and what I feel like we've done in America, and this is anecdotal, but just kind of watching things happen in our nation, in our churches, is we've designed a, a brand of Christianity that makes us feel good, but doesn't cost us anything. Do you understand what I mean by that? We've, we've, we've learned how to, how to do church and how to serve Jesus in a way that, hey, we're getting the blessing, we're getting the benefit, he's making our life better, but radical obedience? No, thank you, God. That's for somebody else. Surely you wouldn't call me to uncomfortable obedience. Well, he's doing that in Abram's life, and Abram is the guy that starts it all. I mean, he, he's starting his redemptive plan with Abram. So God's plan to bless the nations calls for uncomfortable obedience. Sooner or later, if we're going to serve God, if we're going to be involved in his plan to reach a lost and dying world, it's going to be uncomfortable because we're going to have to engage people who are far from God and share the gospel with them and love them and minister to them. God's plan to bless the nations calls for uncomfortable obedience. I'll tell you just a quick story. I've shared this, but it's been, it's been years, and so many of you probably never heard this story before. But one summer, I was, I was an intern with Campus Crusade for Christ, uh, living in Orlando, Florida. 
my grandparents lived in Orlando, so I was living with them. And uh, they were out of town. They were on a, a, a driving vacation out west. And so I kind of had the place to myself, and it was nice. And living there in Orlando. And, and one day I was out at the mailbox, and the neighbor to my grandparents, he was out at the mailbox too. And he was kind of a, kind of a big, burly guy. And we kind of just said hi to one another. And I'd seen when I was out there mowing. Well, pretty soon the Lord just put a, a, a heavy burden on my heart for this man and began to, uh, began to convict me that I needed to go and share uh, the gospel with him. And, it, and it, to be honest with you, it, it just scared me to death. Just, it just scared me to death to, to engage this man with the gospel. But I, I kept reading and, and thinking about Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Uh, 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 it is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first, also to the Greek. And I was repeating and thinking about that verse. And I said, well, I need a, I need a way to, I need a way to you know, meet this guy and, 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 and be able to talk to him in depth. And so here's my plan. I went to uh, the grocery store and I got a roll of Pillsbury slice and bake cookies. Hey, it's the best I could do, all right? And, and I just, I, I slice them, I, I, I mean, I scooped them, put them on a cookie sheet and cooked those cookies, and, and they were done. And I went next door to the guy, and I knocked on the door. I said, hey, I got these cookies here. Do you want some? He looked at me for a minute. He said, yeah, come on in. He's single. He's living by himself. And so I came in, and we were sitting there, and the TV was blaring, and we were kind of making small talk. He's probably wondering, why is this guy bringing me cookies? And, and in, in, my, in my heart, in my mind, I kept thinking, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. 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 And eventually, the, we turned the conversation to spiritual things. I began to ask him some questions. I was able to walk through an entire gospel presentation with him. Now, I can't tell you that he prayed to receive Christ, but the seed of the gospel was planted that night. But can I just tell you this? It was very, very uncomfortable. I would have much rather just been inside my grandparents' house by myself, watching TV, hanging out, you know, enjoying Florida. But, but the Lord laid that burden on my heart. And God's plan to bless the nations calls for uncomfortable obedience. Here's, a, here's another thought about God's plan to bless the nations. It will often seem impossible. When God calls you to serve Him, it will often seem impossible. Now look back with me in Genesis chapter 12. Verse 4, so Abram went. God says, I want you to, to go, and Abram went. He went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarah's wife and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent and with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Now, scholars have figured out the mileage of this journey. Uh, most scholars believe this is about an 800-mile journey for where he left Haran uh, to where he eventually ended up in the land of uh, Canaan. And so Abram uh, decides to obey the Lord. Now, back to the original promise. He said there in verse 2, I will make of you a great nation. 
And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. So, in other words, said Abraham, I'm going to give you descendants. All right? I'm going to show you why that's a problem in just a moment. So he gave Abraham, he said, I'm going to give you descendants. And your descendants will be, will be uh, great. And those that bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. Now, we know that Abraham's descendants are the Jewish people. That's why I always want to be a blessing to the Jews, not a curse, because of this, of this promise here in this passage of Scripture. And then he says, In you, through your descendants, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, that promise was fulfilled when Jesus Christ came through the Jewish people. He came through the Jewish lineage. He came as the Messiah from the Jews. And when he came to this earth, he lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. When he died on the cross, he died for the sins of the world. Right? And after he paid for the sins of the world, he was buried and rose from the dead, alive today, mighty to save. So now, because Jesus came through the descendants of Abraham and died on the cross and rose from the dead, anyone from any tribe, any tongue, any background, any ethnicity, any nation, anyone that places their faith in Christ Jesus will be blessed with salvation. That's what he means. In you, through your descendants, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. I will have representatives from every tribe, every tongue that are blessed with the salvation I will provide through your descendants. Those are the promises. So here are the promises. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you some land. And I'm going to send a Messiah that will bless everyone. Those are the three promises. Now, surely at times this seemed impossible to Abraham. Because God told Abraham that his descendants would be, would be given the land by God, and the land was filled with Canaanites. Look what it says in verse 6. Verse 6, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So, you know, Abraham's walking around thinking, sure, God, you're going to give me this land? I mean, there are people living here. How are you going to give me this land? That seemed impossible to him. And there was a famine in the land that made them leave. Look what it says in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Can you imagine what he was thinking when he was leaving the land? God told me he's going to give me land. There are Canaanites living here, and now there's a famine, and I've got to leave. Doesn't look like this promise is going to work out, God. It seemed impossible from Abram's perspective. Also, this promise to Abram seemed impossible because Abram and Sarah didn't have, didn't have a child. Look what it says at the end of chapter 11. Verse 30, it says, Sarah was barren. She had no child. And they're getting up in years. And the Lord says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you descendants. And Abram's thinking, sure, sure. How's that going to happen? We can't have children. And so this promise to Abraham seemed impossible, surely, from Abraham's perspective. But here's something we can learn from that. God will often confront us with the impossible to show his power and wisdom. God will often confront us with the impossible to show his power and wisdom. As we serve him, as we become a part of his plan to reach the nations, we can expect that it's going to look impossible. And God loves it when we say, that's impossible, because guess what? With God, nothing is impossible. It's an opportunity for God to show his power. So God's plan to bless the nations will often seem impossible, just like it seemed impossible, no doubt, to Abram. 
But here's the next part of this plan to bless the nations. This gets really good here. You ready? God's plan to bless the nations is accompanied with his presence. His plan is going to seem big and impossible, so we need to realize he's with us to help us in those times of hardship, when things look too hard. Look what it says there in verse 7. He comes to the place of Shechem, the oak of Moreh. And in verse 7 it says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar uh, there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Why does God appear to Abram? Because Abram was probably feeling the impossibility of this promise. You're going to give me land and descendants, and we're barren, and they are Canaanites here. And probably there's part of Abraham that wanted to throw in the towel and say, this is probably not going to work out. God, maybe you have the wrong person. So at that moment, no doubt when Abram was weak, God appears to him and reminds him of his presence. And Abram worships him in verses 7 and 8 as a way to remember who God was for his life. And so we need to understand that God's plan for our lives, part of his overarching plan of redemption for the nations, will often call for uncomfortable obedience. And it will often seem impossible. And you and I will often want to throw in the towel and let somebody else do it. But at, in those moments, we need to remember that God is with us. Do you remember the, the Great Commission, end of Matthew chapter 28? Jesus said, he's about to leave the earth, Go, and here's the major verb of the Great Commission, make disciples of all the nations, of all the peoples. I want you to go to all the peoples on the face of the earth and tell them about me so they can become followers of me and serve me and live for me. So go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And then he says... And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. So even as Jesus gave the Great Commission, which is the same plan that God initiates with Abraham. It's all about his rescue for the world, right? The Great Commission and the promise of Abraham are both part of the same plan. And when he gives the Great Commission, he says, Don't forget my presence. Don't forget, it's going to be really, really hard, but I will be with you. There's nothing that you will experience in serving me that you will experience alone. So God's plan to bless the nations is accompanied with his presence. Let me just give this little aside. I believe, based upon all of that, that the best way to experience the manifest presence of God in your life is to be a part of his plan. If you want to experience the presence of God in your life, start serving him and taking the gospel to the nations. And you'll experience his presence in ways you can't even imagine, ways you can't even fathom. When things get very uncomfortable and things seem impossible and God shows up to help you and God shows up to guide you and God shows up to strengthen you and God shows up to encourage you, you will experience his presence. But as long as you are just designing a Christianity that allows you to be comfortable all the time, don't expect to experience the presence of God. Why would you need his presence? Right? Why do you need God's presence just to be comfortable and at ease? (laughs) And so we see here that God 
promises his presence. He reminds Abram of his presence. And his presence is real in our lives as well as we obey the Great Commission. There's another thing here. Got two left. God's plan to bless the nations requires great faith. Requires great faith. So the Lord said to Abram, I'm going to give you a descendant, and then he'll have some descendants, and, and then his descendants will have descendants, and pretty soon there'll be a great nation. And I'm going to give you some land too, Abram. I'm give you a place to live, and your descendants will bless the, the ends of the earth. Three promises. And yet, there are Canaanites living there, there's a famine in the land, and Abram and Sarah are barren. They're unable to have children. And so this was a test of faith in Abram's life, right? Is Abram going to believe the promises of God? Or is he going to buckle under the pressure and live in unbelief? Now, we see here in the story the opposite of faith, and then we see the hallmarks of faith. First of all, we see in Abram's life the opposite of faith. He has some weak moments, okay? So we say, what's the opposite of faith? The opposite of faith is fear. God had given Abram these great promises, but look what happens in chapter 12 of Genesis, verse 10. There's a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. And so Abram is scared that they're going to take his life because they want to take his wife. <laughs> right? Now, was this a, a valid concern on Abraham's part? In that day and time, yes, that probably happened. You'd walk into a, a kingdom where there was a king in charge and princes that were ruling, and if they saw your wife and, and want her, they'd probably just kill you and, and take, take the wife for, for themselves. And so that's probably a valid concern based upon the day and time. But it was not a valid concern based upon the promise God had made. Right? I mean, God had promised Abram, I'm going to give you descendants and give you land and make you a great nation. He can't die right here. For him to be scared for his life is to doubt the promise God had made. Does everyone see that? So Abram here is operating in the opposite of faith. He's operating in fear. How many of you ever felt fear before? Just, just real fear. Fear, more than almost anything else, maybe apart from the, the attacks of the enemy, fear will, will immobilize you and will keep you from reaching your potential in serving the Lord. The opposite of fear is fear. The faith is fear. Secondly, the opposite of faith is focus on self. Look in verse 12. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say, you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, that my life may be spared for your sake. All right? So he's worried about me. So let's, let's, let's uh, put on this show so that I can preserve my life. He's focusing on self. He's forgotten the promises of God. He's, he's forgotten the purposes of God. He's, all, he's focused on himself. And self-focus will derail you from serving God effectively. If life becomes all about you, then you will not be following Jesus and serving him. Third, the opposite of faith is forgetfulness. Forgetfulness. Verse 12 
When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, they will let you live. He'd forgotten God's power, right? God had just appeared to him, reminding him of who he was. But Abram had forgotten that. He'd forgotten who God was. He'd forgotten the power of God. And so God's going to remind him of his power. Look what happens in verse 14. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord's going to intervene here. Abram, if you're going to be a wimp, (laughs) if you're not going to trust my promises, if you're going to let your wife go live in Pharaoh's household, I'll intervene. Look what he says. The Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I, may, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. These plagues must have been bad news. And Pharaoh gave, by the way, not the last time God would use plagues in Egypt. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. And so God intervenes and shows his power and his sovereignty over even Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God reminds Abram of who he is. And so we see Abram, for a time period, and it's going to happen again later in his life, we see him operating in fear and and self-interest and forgetfulness, not faith. But we do know that Faith wins the day in Abram's life. That Abram becomes a man of great faith. Now, what does true faith look like? What are the hallmarks of of true faith? Well, let me give them to you here. These come from R. Kent Hughes, great preacher. He says, true faith believes the bare word of God. In other words, what God says, you believe it. Period. God says it, I believe it, I take it to the bank. That's what faith is. True faith believes the bare word of God. Secondly, true faith steps out on God's word. You believe the word of God to such a degree that you're willing to do something about it. And by the way, if you don't believe God's word enough to do something about it, then you really don't believe God's word. I need to say it again. That was, that was good. I like how that came out. If you don't believe God's word enough to do something about what you're learning, then you don't really believe God's word. If you really believe it's the word of God and you're really taking it at face value, then it calls for a response with your life. Amen? Third, true faith follows wherever God's word directs. True faith follows wherever God's word directs. As you're obeying the word of God led by the 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 spirit of God in your life, you follow. You go where God tells you to go. You do what God tells you to do, even if it's uncomfortable obedience. Fourth, true faith builds altars and worships wherever it goes. We see Abraham begin this pattern in chapter 12, and it happens over in chapter 13 and chapter 14. Abram is a man that builds altars to worship. He believed God and he worshiped God as he saw God directing his life. True faith proclaims the name of the Lord. We'll get to that with the last point. True faith proclaims the name of the Lord. Abram proclaims God's name amongst the Canaanites. So the Bible tells us that even though Abram had some weak moments, his faith in God's promises won the day. 
So listen to me. If you've ever had some weak moments of fear and forgetfulness and self-focus, Abram did too. But Abram was a man of great faith. Faith won the day. Let me show you this in the New Testament. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. There are two passages in the Hebrews Hall of Faith about Abraham, about two different things that happened in his life. Let me show you the first one. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And we'll read about Sarah in just uh, uh, in a few weeks. But we see here that Abraham was a man of great faith. He obeyed God, and faith won the day in his life. Now turn back with me to Genesis 13. I want to give you the last point of this passage. God's plan to bless the nations involves ordinary people. God's plan to bless the nations calls for uncomfortable obedience. God's plan to bless the nations will often seem impossible. God's plan to bless the nations is accompanied with his presence. God's plan to bless the nations requires great faith. We've got to believe God's word and act on it. And here, let, 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 me, let me just stop there for a second. Do we really believe that Jesus is the only way to be saved? Do we, do we really? Now, I know you know the right answers. I know you know what to say in Sunday school, but I'm, listen to me. Do we really believe that people that die without Jesus spend eternity separated from God in a place of torment called hell? Do we really believe that? I mean, do we really believe that? I mean, I know we know that's the right answer according to the Bible, but do we really believe that? Do we act on it? Do we, do we really believe that people who place their faith in Christ will spend eternity in heaven? Death is not the victor. Death loses its sting. You get eternal life in your future that starts at the moment you place your faith in Christ. Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that Jesus saves sinners? Do we really believe that the gospel is for everyone? That anyone, regardless of background or ethnicity or how sinful their life has become, anyone that places their faith in Christ can be radically redeemed? Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that someone who's a persecutor of the church like Paul was can be radically transformed and become a missionary for the church? We really believe that. You think folks that are Taliban can get saved and become radical missionaries for the gospel? Do you believe that? Does the gospel have that kind of power? Does the gospel have the power to break every chain that binds us and wants to destroy our lives? Does, does the gospel have the power to destroy the hold of Satan over our lives? Does the gospel have the power to destroy the fear of death from, from your life and my life? Yes, do we, but do we really believe those things? Because if we really believe those things, we would act on them, wouldn't we? It's one thing to get together and, and have our, you know, our holy huddle and talk about them and say amen. It's another thing to let these truths transform the way we live our daily lives. That's what I mean by true faith. God's plan 
to redeem the nations requires great faith. But here's the last thing. God's plan to bless the nations is all for God's glory. Now look in Genesis 13 with me. We're going to go just a little bit into chapter 13 tonight. God steps in and gets Sarah out of Pharaoh's household. Kicks Abram and Sarah out of, out of there. He's tired of the plagues. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and a lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. God had blessed him materially. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord, and Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. There was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. A lot of times when we think about, about Abram building an altar and worshiping, you think about him you know, around a campfire by himself at night. Kind of the image we have in our mind. But remember, Abram was a leader of a, of a, of a large group of folks. God had added uh, people to his, uh, to his entourage. And so probably his building of the altar and worshiping the name of the Lord was a very public thing. And the Canaanites and Perizzites were living all around the land. So I really like this quote from R. Kent Hughes. He writes, Abram's next stop was some 21 miles to the south, midway between Bethel and Ai, a mile from his tent to each town. Bethel, like Shechem, was home to an important Canaanite sanctuary to the god El, head of their pantheon. But as in Shechem, Abram ignored this and built an altar to Yahweh and called upon the name of the Lord. Abram publicly proclaimed the name of the Lord. He proclaimed his faith. Luther translated this preach to convey the idea here. Abram's entourage was quite large, so this was a very public event. The locals knew what was happening. Proclaiming Yahweh's name would include extolling his great attributes and mighty works. Preach it, Abraham! Again, how beautiful this life of faith was. The Lord had promised to make Abram's name great, and Abram responded by proclaiming the name of the Lord. How far he had come from Babel, the tower builders who wanted to make their name great. Abram spent his time making God famous in Canaan. I like that. So probably what's happening here is Abram is in a very public way saying, I'm not worshiping with the Canaanites, and I'm not worshiping over here with the Perizzites. I'm going to build an altar, and I'm going to worship the one true God, Yahweh. And he proclaims his name before a watching world. He is worshiping, pointing people to the one true God. And this is just a reminder that this plan of salvation that God is initiating with Abraham is all for God's glory. God, uh, God's going to bless Abram in great and mighty ways. But do you see Abram here has the desire to make God's name famous? And that's what, that's what church should be about. That's what Longview Point should be about. Our desire, our ultimate desire, the thing that drives us, the thing that keeps us keeping on when we want to throw in the towel, the thing that causes us to show up and work at vacation Bible school, the thing that, that ought to make our hearts beat fast, the thing that should grip us, is that God's name deserves all glory. We should be passionate about making much of Jesus.
That's what missions is all about, right? We go and make a big deal about Jesus. Jesus saves. And so we need to remember this plan of redemption is all for God's glory. And so those are some realities about God's plan to bless the nations. It started with Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12, and it's still continuing on today. And now, Abram's gone to be with his Lord in heaven. Now we're the main actors in the drama, right? We're we're the main actors in this story of redemption. So now God calls us to obey. God calls us to follow him. God calls us to proclaim his glory among all the nations. God calls us to preach the gospel and make disciples. And so we are part of God's plan to bless the nations. So interesting stuff in Genesis chapter 12. And what we're going to see happen is we're going to see God keep his promises to Abraham. That's what's going to happen in the next few chapters. He's he's going to give him descendants. And, And the rest of Genesis is about Abram's descendants. A lot of folks call this section the the patriarchs. This section details the lives of the patriarchs. And just kind of quick heads up, you think your family's a mess? You wait till we study the patriarchs. I mean, you just wait. Some crazy stuff happened in the patriarchs, but God's a God of grace. And God still worked out his purposes, and God still accomplished what he wanted to accomplish to build a nation through whom he could send the Messiah to die for our sins. And so we're going to see that plan unfold and see God build this nation through Abraham's descendants in the coming days.